Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's Sober or Slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety. Jones of Imagine Publicity joining you for another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air. I'm really, really happy that you're here. I hope to always bring you, you know, topics of interest, discussion of current issues, author interviews, and a wide variety of subjects that you've asked me for. I appreciate your tremendous feedback, and please keep the suggestions for future episodes coming. You can shoot me an email at delilah at imaginepublicity.com, or you can go through my website contact form at imaginepublicity.com. That's easy. So anyway, who goes through their daily life at work or at play thinking about death? Maybe a funeral director or someone in the end-of-life professions, but normally we don't give them a thought, do we? Maybe because it's difficult for us to face our own mortality. However, death is the one thing we can be certain of, that no matter who you are, how successful or poor you may be, what religion you adhere to, or whatever your race, we all end up dying equally. We often approach death as the end, the final goodbye world. It's all over now. Some believe that to be true and others don't and feel that we live on somewhere and death is just a significant part of life as we know it on earth and that we're only transforming into a different realm believe we all wish for our death to be painless and without fear to ourselves and to our loved ones but is that easy in her recent book talking through death dr deborah cunningham breed a professor of communications at coastal carolina university in conway south carolina and a dear friend of mine takes us on a journey through the subject of death of all things death Yes. Welcome, Deb. Thank you so much, Delilah. I appreciate you having me on today. You bet. And can you just fill us in on a little bit of your background and then go into telling us why you and your co-author chose to write about the subject of talking through death? Oh, I'd be delighted. Um, So I am a faculty member and researcher at Coastal Carolina University. I've been here for about 13 years. I went to the University of South Florida in Tampa and got my Ph.D. And during that time when I was studying there, I was introduced to a variety of different writing styles, research styles, 
and some methods that are a little bit untraditional in our traditional social science and research paradigms. And so most of my work is personal. It's narrative. I try to use stories to teach and make the claims that are important to us. And one of my very dear friends and colleagues, Dr. Christine Davis from University of North Carolina in Charlotte, was also a graduate student at University of South Florida while I was there. She and I were very close. She ended up getting a position in North Carolina. I'm in South Carolina. And we've done a lot of work together that not only tries to look at a variety of social and cultural issues through the lens of narratives and stories, but she was actually the one who began to work on this book first. Her areas of studies are very specific to communication at end of life, using narrative and stories, but she had never done rhetorical analysis, and she wanted to look at gravestones and analyze epitaphs. She invited me to travel with her to Charleston and look at some of those fascinating historic churchyard graves down there, and we realized that we shared a passion for that type of work. She invited me to come on to the book with her, and here we are. We are excited about the book's release, and I'm hoping that your listeners are going to enjoy it as much as she and I enjoyed writing it. I know I did. It was it was expected because I know you know you're you are academic. I can't even say it. Um, anyway. You're at the college level as a professor, so I really expected something very academic, very almost clinical, but it wasn't that at all, not at all. I I got into the first chapter, and I was really hooked with the storytelling style that that you both brought into this. And, um, you know, it was very enjoyable to read, even though people might think, you know, it's a subject that's dark, but it really, you didn't make it that way, not not at all. And, you know, just getting into the book itself, describe through your research and through what you've written, describe a good death. Oh, I think that most of us yearn for a good death, and uh, we talk about that quite a bit in the book. I think most of us, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction, Delilah, I think most of us want to save and preserve our loved ones from pain, from financial difficulty, from all of the challenges uh, that linger when you have an extended illness um, and an unplanned ending. And so, and I think that in many ways is part of the problem as to why people don't want to talk about death too much. Um, they in, kind of anticipate that it's going to cause their loved ones pain, that it may not be appropriate. And so I think many people avoid the topic. But in order to have what we want, which I think you're right, is a good death, a death that's relatively pain-free, a death that's relatively peaceful. I think a lot of people would prefer to die at home rather than in an institution. And I think most people are really worried about the expense and the cost for themselves and their families that not only come with dying, a modern funeral today can generally cost several thousand dollars and can cost way more. 
but I think that most of them want to preserve assets in other ways as well. And so I think for most of us, a good death is one that uh, doesn't involve a huge financial burden on the family members. I think it involves a lack of pain and discomfort and suffering. And I think most of us would prefer a quick death. Uh, talking to my friends and in the many conversations Chris and I have had, I, I would like to age wonderfully, maintain most of my facilities and money until I die, and die very peacefully in my sleep uh, at home and have some plans made so that my loved ones don't have to struggle with planning during the grieving time. And I think for many of us, especially those of us in American cultures where death has been kind of sanitized and removed from our daily lives, I think that's what most of us wish for. You know, I think that's a good point. It has been removed from us. We don't see it. We don't talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. It's just that elephant in the room kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, talking about the expense of funerals and and all that goes along with the rituals of of death, Mm -hmm. do you feel like that's one of the things that has has about the movement of green burials and, and so many more people are choosing for cremation because it's a lot less expensive. You don't, you know, you, you don't leave a spot in a plot of land and takes up less room or for many other variety of reasons. I think you're right. I think that um, there is quite a bit more interest in ways to minimize the costs of death. And Chris and I talk about this a lot in the book. You know, I was raised Roman Catholic, and at the time I was raised, it was forbidden for Roman Catholics to be cremated. My mom and I agreed that one of the most horrible things that could happen to us would be to be burned after our deaths. And so we both agreed we wanted a traditional burial in the ground. Uh, I had spent wonderful times at cemeteries, visiting family. Uh, We have lots of stories in the book about cemetery visits and how those are kind of infused with family and playtime, especially for children who were brought along on those visits. It was a tradition here in the South, especially for people to go on Sundays after church and visit, visit their loved ones who were in the graves. Uh, but as time has gone on, Delilah, I, I am moving more and more toward cremation and other possibilities myself. And one of the main reasons is the expense. I don't want my family to have to pay ten to $20,000 in order to buy me the casket and the coffin and the burial plot. And quite frankly, I don't want to use my resources in that way. I also was really impressed by your comment about leaving remains in the ground. You know, um, it's a sad thing to have to talk about, but we're actually running out of space for traditional burials. And in many low-lying areas, this has already become a problem with regard to flooding, with regard to hurricanes and storms, with regard to the fact that we're just running out of land. And so I think that cremations, green burials, mausoleum-style traditional burials, if that's a preference, are really becoming not only way more cost-efficient for most families, but for those of us who are worried about the environment, who don't want our families to face the horror of a terrible Katrina-type storm coming through and unearthing graves. I think these are really valid reasons that a lot of people are beginning to explore having much more environmentally friendly and cost-friendly types of burials or endings to their bodies. I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, 
you're absolutely all the points you made are absolutely valid and and I've always felt cremation is the way to go um mm-hmm. but you know everybody feels very differently about it so absolutely. you know in your book you you went through a lot of different end of life experiences and how how the communication within families goes when you know when a loved one is, has announced that maybe they have a terminal illness or the, you know they're just mm-hmm. not going to make it um, mm-hmm. How? What are the different factors that are involved in all of that? That's such a good question. And the research, one of the most, I think, interesting things that Chris and I have um, kind of uncovered and explored within the research we've done for the book is that most um, people assume that at some point you're going to have a final conversation that's going to kind of outline the ways in which you would like those final times in your life to be spent. And unfortunately, even though most people think that that talk is going to end up come, the vast majority of people never talk about their own impending deaths until they're actually diagnosed with a terminal illness. On the other hand, most families in research suggest that they would way rather have those conversations much earlier. So there's a real tension and dialectic in the fact that many of us are hesitant to even bring up the conversation with our family members, and yet after someone dies, most of the family members, as many as 90%, wish that they would have gone on and talked about the impending death of the loved one. It's not just about the person who has a terminal illness or knows that their time may be coming near to end this world, right? It's about the family members who also are reluctant to bring up any type of death planning, especially after someone has become ill. And the reasons why they're reluctant to do so are really understandable. They don't want to confront a very ill person with the fact that they may be dying. They often assume that that's something that the person may not be aware of. They don't want to cause them undue distress. They're always hoping that they're going to recover. And so I think it's a natural tendency for us to put off really difficult conversations, especially if we don't ever think we're going to have to talk about it right then. So I think it's it's a kind of this hope that the person's going to recover and I don't need to talk about it. And if they're not going to recover, I don't want the person to have to spend the, what might be their last couple of days talking about funeral arrangements and death plans. And I think that's one of the reasons why families and people who love each other should begin to initiate these conversations very, very. In the book, you know, I talk about talking with my nephews as early as four and five and six years old about death and about what kind of parties we're going to have when we die and making arrangements with toys. And I think it's an important way to get children socialized into the notion that death, like family, like love, like challenges, are all a part of life. Absolutely true. And I think, too, you know, if you don't have those conversations and you wait until the end is near, it causes so much more stress when you, when the, the dying person is trying to figure out what to do with their possessions. And I, I find, even in my own family, when one of my grandmothers died, it it caused a huge rift in the family because so-and-so got this and so-and-so got that. 
And even though she had written a lot of things down, they didn't agree. And so, right. you know, there, there's the argument and right. cause for conflict where if, you know, if we as, as people would just sit down and, and formally do this and get it out of the way, then there's no questions. Then there's no brothers and sisters arguing with each other about you got more than I did. Right, and I think that's a really good point. I have not only, you know, been an academic and a professor and, and a deaf scholar, but, but in, in past lives I've worked as a paralegal, and I can tell you that there are few things that will rip a family apart as much as an unexpected death and the ensuing fights that occur not just over things, but about final wishes. Because in families, of course, like in all relationships, past conflict, past assumptions bubble up. And so those resentments, those long-held grudges, those jealousies, especially between siblings, are going to bubble up at that time. You also have the problem with marital partners. You know, as families intermarry, as families begin to marry and have children, you have a tension between the family heirlooms and the rights and the preferences of perhaps a surviving husband or wife. Uh, I think that you also have not just all of the conflicts and all of the problems, but even when people are talking to you about death, those conversations differ quite a bit. I talk in the book about the fact that when my mom died, uh, my dad wanted the donations to go to the Norfolk Sports Club, a charity and an organization that had been very dear to my parents and to the family for decades. My mom had always told me in private conversations she wanted memorials to go to the St. Mary's Children's Home. And so just something as minor as that can cause um, ill feelings, can cause resentment, cause conflicts. And at a time when you're grieving, when the family is suffering, when you're trying to take care of so many needs, that's the last time you want to be fighting with people you love about details of where money's going to go, right? And so I feel like it's so much better to get all of this written down, talked about, discussed in the family setting. My parents used to have family meetings with us. My brothers, myself, the nephews got together, and we talked about what my parents wanted and how that would look and how that would get managed. And we had the opportunity to share concerns or talk about um, problems or potential questions when they were healthy, when we could talk to them, when we could validate their choices and also maybe point out some of the things we were concerned they may not have been thinking about. And while some of those conversations may not be seamless, it's way preferable to have them while you can talk to that person and ask questions. And so I think it's a really important part of our lives to be able to begin to talk about our final days and begin to plan for our families, for ourselves, and for their futures in a lot of really important ways. Absolutely. And, it's you know, unfortunately, there's so much dysfunction in families that they barely sure. come together for a meal, let alone to sit, sit around the table and talk about their final wishes. Um, right. Let's let's flip it a little bit. Let's talk about um, 
the view the the religious versus the secular view of death. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I know you've done a lot of research in those areas as well. You know, different religions. I mean, we have as many religions as we have countries in the world, <laughs> and everyone looks at it a little bit different. And then you mm-hmm. also have the secular view of the people who really don't adhere to any religion. Um, mm-hmm. What do you find that the difference is there? The differences are huge, you know, especially for people who um, live their faith, believe in a particular religious faith. And so often those beliefs and those assumptions are tied into the notion of resurrection and are tied into the notion of a rebirth after death. You know, for Christians, we believe that if you haven't lived a life in a particular way, you risk eternal damnation, right? And this is um, something that you see in a variety of major religions. And so it is not only a really important value for family members that are religious, but for them it's unthinkable to damn your soul because you would prefer a more secular type of funeral. And as you mentioned, a lot of people don't share those beliefs, and sometimes they are in the same family. And so the tensions between the people who insist on a religious service because they are so concerned about those worries of eternal damnation, of a soul condemned to hell, of never being able to be free again in your death, so to speak. I think that makes it especially difficult in families where you have folks who hold very strong religious beliefs and a person who may be wanting to plan for a death or talk about an impending death who does not share those beliefs. Because not only are you talking about, hey, I want this and I want that, right, as we do with so many rituals. Well, you know, I want my wedding to be this way, and someone says I want it to be that way, usually a parent, and you kind of mediate, you talk, and you work things out. When you're talking about a religious faith, sometimes those choices are imbued with notions that this is an irrevocable decision that will have eternal consequences. And so... We talk to a lot of young people, uh, especially young people, I think, who are frustrated because they do not want a religious service, and yet many in their family are insisting that it should be that way. I think, again, Delilah, that's why these conversations have to come early. Because a lot of times, especially if you're Christian and were raised Christian or you're in a particular faith and you were raised in that faith, there's an assumption that, of course, you're going to have a religious ceremony. And, of course, you're going to have a preacher say words. And, of course, you're going to be buried in a graveyard. And that's simply not the way a lot of people want to go. And so I think it's another reason why we really have to have these conversations early, start fleshing out some of those conflicts, And I think it's important to remember that it's up to the person who's dying how they want their body to be disposed of and what kinds of words and services they want said at their death. And as difficult as that is for a lot of families, especially a lot of families who have very predetermined notions about death and dying and what's going to happen to you during that process, I think that's really hard. And I believe that we all have the individual right to choose not only how we live our lives, but also how we die. And I think that's an important consideration that we have to be respectful of. And, yeah, it is. And what about, what are your thoughts about, um, how do I put this, people who are ready to go, 
you know, they're ready to go. And we have the means to help them do that at the time Mm -hmm. that they choose. Like you say, people should have the right to choose how and when they go. Mm -hmm. Um, What what did your research show on that? I I don't want to necessarily call it euthanasia because I don't think that's it at all. But I think at at a lot of times we we treat our pets a little bit more compassionately during the end times of their lives than we do our own family members and and people that we know. I think that's a really good point. And I think that it, I think you're right. Uh, I also try to avoid the word euthanasia because it's used so much with non-human beings, right? I mean, we, we, do that with our dogs. And and so I try to use that. I try, try to avoid that. I'm sorry. On the other hand, as you know, Delilah, um, I watched my mom suffer and waste away for 20 years from Alzheimer's. And during the last five to ten years of her life, she could not speak. She could not move. She was trapped in a rigid position. There was very little brain function. She had to be fed. The cost of her care in the facility where my family, uh, where we had her during those end times, was $8,000 a month, okay, a month. And um, I, I often struggled with an internal feeling that I wished my mom would die. And I felt guilty. I felt like a bad daughter. I worried that it was not what my mom would want, but as that time went on and I saw the toll on my mother, who never improved, who continued to worsen, um, I saw the toll on my family, on my father, her husband of over 60 years at that point. I saw the financial toll. I, I prayed for her death, and I was relieved and incredibly saddened when she died. And I believe that if people would like to, you know, it's interesting, uh, Senator John McCain just died, and uh, you and your listeners may be aware that during the final days of his life, he too refused treatment. I think that it is our right to decide, you know what? As Paul would say from the Bible, I have fought the good fight. I am ready to go. And I think that too, like our preferences with burial, need to be respected. Well, and again, it's something that needs to be talked about and communicated in a family that, you know, of course, we all have our, well, hopefully we have our own directives that are set out as far as living wills and medical directives and things that you need to have. Please pull the plug and all of that. Mm-hmm. But again, when you're faced with the situation, the, the the words on the paper don't have any meaning. It's the person that you're communicating with who's dying that that's where all the meaning is. That's where all Absolutely. the communication needs to be. And some people just, they're not going to go. They're going to go fighting and kicking every step of the way. But then, the, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other people that, that, are just they're okay with that and 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 I think a lot of times we hold them back. I know mm-hmm. our very good friend um in her end times she I know she was ready to go, but I didn't want her to go. 
And I think she hung on because I didn't want her to go. And, um, you know, that's, I look back on it now and I see the mistakes that I made and I should have, I should have succumbed to her wishes. Um, and she could have done that. She could, I mean, but she was thinking of me and thinking of you and, and all of the other people who mattered to her. And it was important for us to keep her in our lives as long as we possibly could. And I think, you know, a lot of people feel that way, that, if I just hang on to this soul that's slipping away, then, you know, it's one more day. It's one more day. But then you're right in the way that you described your mother. It does get to that point. It's like, you know, you can't go on like this. You just can't go like this any longer. And it's, it's a weird thing that, Mm-hmm. I know I would wake up in the middle of the night and hear her calling for me even after she died because Absolutely. it had happened so many times that it became a habit. And, you know, you, you miss those things. But on the other hand, it was it was a, a relief. And then you feel guilty about being relieved. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're our own worst enemies sometimes when it comes to allowing a person to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that it is the greatest gift of love you can give to someone is to, as they're lying there, unconscious usually, to lean over and whisper to them, you know what, let go. I I love you and I want want to be here for you and I want you to let go now. It's okay to let go because I do think that people hang on. You know, there are so many documented cases of people who, even though they're supposed to day three days ago, they're waiting for the daughter to arrive or the son to arrive, and when that person gets there, they die 10 minutes later. I mean, there's so many stories like that out there, and I think people do hang on, and I think people do wait, and I think that often misery is prolonged in all kinds of ways when it doesn't have to be. And I am beginning to believe it is the biggest gift of love is to tell someone, you know what, it's okay. When you're ready, I'm going to be ready. And we need to do that on your time, not on mine. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, okay, now we're going to flip to another question. (laughs) Sure. Beyond death communication, what is it? Why do we have the need or or why do we feel so strongly that we need to communicate beyond the veil you know we need to talk with the people who are on the other side and it's become mm-hmm. a jillion dollar business for some people mm-hmm. who and it and it goes way back it's not anything new i mean you know you could I, you you lived in the land of Edgar Casey. So, mm-hmm, I did. You know, I, you're familiar with a lot of his work and seances and you know all the the paranormal things. But you know, what do you think it is? Why why do we have that need? I uh, I think that's a great question. And as you know, Delilah, we devote almost a whole chapter in the book to this phenomenon of the ghost hunter, the spectral, the seance. Uh, ghost tours that are becoming so popular everywhere. 
I think one of the reasons why we are so incredibly fascinated with death right now as a culture is because we have completely removed it from our living lives. Um, I think that humans are always curious about death and always have been curious about death. And in many cultures, there are built-in cultural practices that recognize and allow for those expressions. You know, if you think of the Mexican Los Dias de los Muertes, right, the Day of the Dead, which is a holiday and a celebration where everyone has time off and you go to the cemeteries and you bring gifts for your loved ones and you actually kind of party on the graves. Death is a living presence in some cultures. In our culture, Chris and I argue that it has been sanitized and removed. It has become the unspeakable and neither of us agree that that is either healthy or preferred for a culture or for an individual. And I think that's one of the reasons why we now have this incredible um, preoccupation with seances and uh, ghost tours. I think that it is probably as popular, if not more popular in our culture than it ever has been. And I think it often tracks periods of time where there's angst. You know, there is a lot of literature about the fact that zombie movies and um, um, these apocalyptic movies become very popular when there is a sense of foreboding or dismay culturally, when we're worried about things. It's no you know, coincidence that all of the, that all of the um, uh, uh, Japanese movies about Godzilla – uh, began to appear during the nuclear tensions and Cold War of the 50s, right? People are worried we're all going to get blown up by nuclear bombs, and so there's a becomes a fascination with death. I think that's very true right now. I don't think it's any coincidence that television shows like The Walking Dead are so popular, that there is a fascination right now with the apocalypse, and I think that that's tracked in our cultural lives, in our recreation. So, uh, say on ghost tours, dark tourism are all very, very popular. And I think it's one of the ways that we begin to poke around with death in ways that are culturally approved, maybe as opposed to uh, bringing up topics or engaging in conversations that some people may not uh, want to engage in. There's a great chapter in the book that, that my co-author did most of the research on, and she actively sought out the ghost tours and the hauntings and did the tours and was a guest with some of the shows where they do these haunted places. And um, it is quite an industry, and it has a huge audience following. I think also, um, just on a really human and emotional level, uh, I know I would probably give most anything I have other than people I love um, to have 10 minutes talking to my mom, right? I mean, to be able to hear my mom's voice again. Remember, my mom couldn't speak for 10 years before she died. Um, and I think that there's this yearning that we have and the grief and the and the love that we feel for people who have passed, who have died. And... Um, I don't know how many of your listeners or you have ever seen the film Peggy Sue Got Married. It's an old film, Nicolas Cage and Kathleen Turner. 
but there's a poignant scene where, you know, she goes, the main character goes back in time to the 50s, and she's in her kitchen as a child, and it's like it was when she was growing up, and the phone on the wall rings, you know, and she picks it up, and it, it's her grandmother, and um, her grandmother in, in, in the present time in the film had been dead for many years, and so she picks up the phone and says hello, and her, her grandmother begins to talk to her, whose voice she hadn't heard in years, and I can only imagine what it would be like. You know, I sometimes, I don't have any recordings of my grandmother's voice, and I often wonder what it would be like for a phone to ring, and I pick it up, and my grandmother's voice is there, and I can hear that voice again. My God, what a gift. And so I understand the preoccupation with some of these, what to some people seem these outrageous shows, a seance or a ghost tour or a medium who's going to invoke someone who's dead, someone who talks to the dead. I understand that because I think most of us wish with almost all our hearts that we could pick up a phone and hear the voice of someone we love who is gone. Oh, we all do. And I mm-hmm. I truly believe though that there I think there are visitations. Um did you go into that? I think in in the dream state, I know for myself, you speak about grandmothers. I was I was closer to my grandmother than anyone else in the world in mm-hmm. my life. And so, you know, when she died, it was traumatic for me. Um, and you're right. We spoke on the phone every Saturday morning, yep. no matter where I lived or what I was doing or what she was doing. We made a point to talk to each other every Saturday. And I, yeah, I would give anything to have another Saturday conversation. But then mm-hmm. I take comfort in the fact that, I can feel the presence sometimes. I can, in a dream, you know, people come to you and you mm-hmm. wonder, well, what is this about? <laughs> mm-hmm. I haven't seen you in a long time. How do, do I still know who you are and what is it that you want to to tell me? And I don't know. I, I, I believe that if we get into the quiet centers of our of our lives that, they're there. They're around. There are signs and wonders everywhere if we just pay attention, but we're too busy to do that. So I, I feel like the business end of it where people are being, I think, you know, in some cases they're they're very much being exploited that, you know, to pay money to, to do this, it, it's kind of a, a desperate act, don't you think? I understand it, but it it's not how I would spend my money. <laughs> On the other hand, I believe that time is fluid. I, I follow with Einstein and other theories that, that time is fluid. It's like a river. And if that is indeed true, and then I believe that there are untold possibilities at the way we might be able to not only access other people, but other periods of time. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I truly do not know. I do not have an opinion on ghostly visits. You've read the book. You know that I've had a poltergeist experience that is very difficult to explain in any way other than some type of haunting. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a, I tend to, to be a scientist, and so it's hard for me to buy that. On the other hand, Delilah, I will tell you that every night when I'm falling asleep, 
I kind of call my grandmother and my mother to me, and I envision times in my mind, and they speak to me in my head and offer me advice, and I can see them. And I don't know if that's real or if it's not, but it's often the only way I can fall asleep. It's a night ritual. Oh, yeah. Yeah, by spending that time with them. Yeah, I I often do the same thing. It's like, and and you can think about times when you're sick or you're not feeling good, and then, mm-hmm. um, or you're really really sick, and it's kind of like, all right, I'm dying. Just take mm-hmm. me now. <laughs> Let's get mm-hmm. it over with. And then mm-hmm. you know the still voice comes into your head and says, no, nah, it's not your time yet. You you mm-hmm. you'll get through this, and somehow we do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, both of us living where we live in the South, there's a lot of of different traditions that we hold down here that maybe maybe in other parts of the country aren't quite as prevalent. And I was very fascinated with the cemetery research. Let's go back to the cemetery when, and I, even though I truly believe in in cremation and and green ways to dispose of of our bodies i think you know the cemetery thing i remember going to a lot of different cemeteries growing up visiting family members or looking up family members you never even knew about but it was just interesting to me um to just be there and Mm -hmm. and be in in their presence and I think we're not going to have that. I, I know in, in my own case, my mother and father are both buried in Ohio. Mm-hmm. I have never been back there to go to their graves. Right. And, you know, that just, it's just not on, on my mind of something to do. Um, I memorialize them in totally different ways, but as far as making a, a graveyard trip, um, it's not happening. Right. What do you think? Maybe you can relate some of the really interesting stories that you found in your research through some of the old, old cemeteries here in the South. Absolutely. Well, I we've really found that cemeteries aren't just a place where people are memorialized, but our culture is memorialized, right? And I'm going to use um, the St. Michael Cemetery down in Charleston as, as an example. It's one of the oldest cemeteries in America. It has withstood natural disasters, fires, floods. It's withstood earthquakes. <laughs> it has withstood uh, the bombardment uh, during the Civil War. Um, it has generations of families there, and it's actually one of my favorite places to go. Um, it's beautiful. It's it's gorgeous. It's shady. It's got Spanish moss hanging. The birds are chirping. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But what's really so fascinating about it is you can track our culture's history in almost every way. Um, not only are there generations of families there, but you can track um, some of the original families who came from Ireland, from Scotland, from England, from France. Um, You can uh, look at the ways their families have grown. You can look at the differences in the archaeological and the religious styles. 
You can look at the gender differences in the way women and men were memorialized as time has gone on. It's a quite remarkable cemetery because in Charleston, a lot of people don't realize that it was a relatively freedom of religion place. I mean, the early colonies touted freedom of religion, but most of us know that that wasn't necessarily the case. And they... they uh, uh, we're still rather discriminatory about particular types of religious practices. But this cemetery has a, a section of uh, Jews, for example, are intermingled with the Christian burials. Women and men are not separated. Um, there are a variety of different Christian faiths represented. Um, there are a variety of non-Christian faiths represented. And so it's really... Uh, an interesting place to be, especially in the South, because in so many of, of the graveyards in the South that are historic, especially in, you know, where I'm from, Norfolk, Virginia, blacks and whites were not buried together. And while that is still relatively true, even in Charleston, there are a lot of separate, predominantly African-American or enslaved graveyards as opposed to predominantly white church graveyards. It's a kind of remarkable thing in South Carolina, especially, because there is so much um, integration of the death practices that tracks Charleston's. It's called the Holy City because it had more churches of various denominations, including Judaism and Quaker faith, just all kinds of things that aren't your more traditional Protestant religions. And uh, it was also a, one of the few places in, in the early colonies where unmarried women were allowed to own property. Um, and so while it suffered from a variety of horrible, horrible uh, racisms, it also was a kind of a, a budding place for freedoms in some ways as well. So it's become a place where I just want to go. <laughs> I just like to go there and hang out and picnic. For me, um, going to graveyards, graveyards is not a, an unpleasant experience. In the book, I talk a lot about the fact that I uh, – I'm very comfortable at graveyards because in my family, we traditionally went to the graveyards to visit the dead. And it was a tradition mm -hmm. that my family members and I have carried on quite a bit. And so some of my favorite parts of the book are those stories of my sister or my, my cousin and I going to visit the graves. Um, and you're right. It's unfortunate that I don't get to visit the graves as much as I would like to anymore for my family, just like you. Um, not only are they far away, but, you know, if you're like me, Delilah, when I go to visit family in, in Ohio or in Virginia or wherever we're going to visit family, I prefer to spend my time with the living than the dead. They're still alive, right? right? Exactly. And, and, and so if I have to choose between spending time with my nephews or my dad or doing a family day or having an outing with, with family, I'm, I'm going to choose that rather than spending time with the dead. I think that's just kind of pragmatic, right? <laughs> right. So I think those are some <laughs> of the tensions. But, hey, give me a box of public fried chicken and let me go to a graveyard and sit there and chomp and think and reflect and remember and write and talk and giggle. I, I'm, I and that makes crazy. so much more sense. That, that's a really good way to spend a Sunday afternoon, in my opinion. <laughs> it is, absolutely. Well, these stories are fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, what what else in the book would you really want to get out to the listeners to 
encourage them to get out and buy this book. Get advanced planning done. There are kits you can get online. I think, especially based on our conversation, Delilah, it's so easy. Don't make your grieving, devastated family have to think about what you might have wanted once you're gone. Go on and download one of those convenient living wills. Write down who you want certain things to go to. Give copies to everyone you know. Some of them are going to be surprised and horrified, but insist that it's something that you feel like you need to do now. Don't leave it with your attorney. Make sure that all of your family have copies. Attorneys die. Attorneys come and go. Attorneys change practices. Don't make them have to track that down when they're gone. My dad has a file cabinet. I know where everything is. And when he goes, we will be devastated. We will also know exactly what he wanted once he passed. That that just can't be said enough. It really can't. It's It's so very, very important. Well, what do you feel and what has your research shown Let's talk about the medical field, how the medical field is dealing with the end-of-life issues that people have. It's a really good question. I think the medical field is becoming more and more and more sensitive to the family needs and to the needs of, of, of the dying human being. I remember when I was young, uh, only two people could go into intensive care, and they both had to be direct family members. Most hospitals are relaxing a lot of those stigmas and a lot of those um, types of rules. I think that more and more medical providers are trying to facilitate conversations about death, are trying to be more sensitive about easing pain, are trying to be better about making space for the family. Um, But I also think that we still have a long way to go. Uh, I like the idea of open wards where people can come and go relatively freely. I like There are some um, facilities where you can bring pets. My mom was at a facility where the residents were allowed to have a pet there with them. Um, I think there's more and more accommodations with regard to children who are dying, which is an especially tough thing for families. I think we're getting better, Delilah, but I think we still have so far to go. And part of that lies in something we talked about earlier. There are a lot of discussions around whether we have the right to terminate our own lives. There are still a lot of religious dogma where that is forbidden. There's still the problems with suicide and the pain and the horror and the reasons that occurs. But I think that there are some compelling reasons why we should be talking about the fact that when a person has lived a good life, they fought the good fight, they are now at their end times. They're 80, they're 90, they're 100, they're 110. There is no hope for cut recovery. And they're done. They want to go. I think that we need to do a better job of making that space where that can happen. And given religious uh, taboos, given laws that exist in most states still, given the very justified concerns about the incredible finality of the termination of a human life, I understand the conversations that have to go on regarding that. 
but I am hopeful that soon we will come to the time where we can create a space for dying, where the person who wants to die, especially when they're suffering a horrible death, has the rights and the ability and the space to create that and allow themselves to go. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, we have to have that. We we just have to. There's there's something to be said for death with dignity and respect. We need to respect that person and what they wish to do and not our own selfish. <laughs> and I I'm, you know, I'm the worst one. I'm selfish in that way. But mm. I'm learning. We're all learning. Well, what a beautiful and, and I think what a beautiful idea, right? To be able for the family and the loved ones to come together to sit there and hold that person and touch them yes. and caress them and love them, to play the music that person wants to play and to allow that person to gently drift off encircled by the people they love. That's not yes. the way most deaths occur now. And uh, it's a, it's a hard, if you, you, many of us have witnessed the death of a loved one and it is a hard, jarring horror. And and mm-hmm. why do it that way when we have the mechanisms and we have the ability to make that a much more gentle, much more loving process, especially when we know it's going to happen anyway. We're talking exactly. about people who are often terminally ill. John McCain denied treatment and he died two days later. I mean, these are people who know that their time is gone. Let them go. Exactly. And, and don't so you feel I, like... I a lot of times in the medical field, a lot of treatments, they prolong the agony in, in some cases. And a lot of these treatments are kind of a last-ditch effort. Just for example, I had a relative who was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. Well, mm-hmm. And it was terminal. There was no getting better. But yet right. they put her through all of the chemo and the radiation and and all that goes with it, that her last days were miserable, not because of the cancer, not because of the impending death, but because of the poisons and and treatment was horrifying for her. Um, So that could be a topic for a whole other book for you. (laughs) It really can. You know, I had a similar experience with my mother-in-law, Delilah, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, and she began. It was it was deadly. It was terminal. She'd been given so many so much time to live, and she valiantly started treatment. Um, she wanted to, and 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 most of the family wanted her to. And uh, after starting treatment, probably in January, February, she died in April. And it wasn't because of the cancer. She died of complications from the chemotherapy. And I think that's often the way folks go. And um, there's no need for that. There's no need to put someone through that type of suffering, especially if they don't want to go through that type of suffering. There's no reason to incur that type of expense. There's no reason to incur that type of pain and horror, especially when a human being is saying, you know what, I'm 78 years old, I've had a great life, I do not want to suffer during my last days, I want to take control of this time, I want to spend some quality time with my family, and I'm going to go this way. And I I think it's another area where we're making improvements, but there's a lot more work to be done in that that setting, from the medical field. 
I, that's my belief anyway. Yeah, I think hope reigns supreme. I, I know that from talking to a lot of doctors, um, working with a lot of doctors, especially in the research for the book, they're like us. They don't want to give up. They don't want to give up. They keep thinking mm-hmm. one more treatment, one more procedure, there's one more thing to try, and especially when they have a desperate family saying, isn't there one more thing we can do? The worst True. thing for a doctor is to say, you know what, there's nothing else I can do. It is an, a failure. They, they, Many of them internalize that as a failure on their part. And uh, it's hard, especially when the family is saying, no, 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 we got to keep going. we got to keep going. we got to keep trying. And so I think that medical professionals struggle with this just like most of us do. And um, I am very encouraged by the cultural dialogues going on right now where I believe we're getting to some acknowledgments that maybe there are other ways that we can spend our last days than in um, a medical setting. I love it. I love this book, Talking Through Death, and it's been a wonderful conversation. And I think it's a, again, communication is the key to all of this. And you being a professor of communication, <laughs> this is right up your alley. So tell tell everyone where they can get a copy of Talking Through Death, so that they can begin their journey um, on I making things easier. To. Yes, I would love to. Thank you. Right now, the book is available on Amazon. If you just go to your Amazon homepage and in the search uh, uh, area, just type in Talking Through Death, it's going to come right up. You'll see Dr. Davis and myself, Dr. Breed, as the authors. Um, It is available on Kindle. It's also available um, for the the regular hard copy, it's available for rental. It's also available through Rutledge, Rutledge Publisher. If you just do a search for Rutledge, it's www.rutledge.com. But again, if you type in Talking Through Death, the book will come right up. And I love Amazon. It's so convenient. But I did want to mention that Rutledge has this book as an ebook, and it's $22 as opposed to right now it's going for about 40 on Amazon. So save yourself some money. Get that ebook if that's uh, something that's pleasurable for you. $22 on Rutledge, www.rutledge.com. Perfect. And I know you have some some uh, book launch events scheduled for the future, and people need to come out. They need to meet you, and they need I to love it. Yes, and get a copy of Talking Through Death and carry on the conversation in your own families and in your own circle of friends. And let's make it something easier to talk about. Let's make it not so much the elephant in the room. Our time for this episode has wound down very quickly, as it always does. And I I can't tell you enough how happy I am that you joined me today, Deb. You know, we go we go a long way back, and we, and we have a long way some to death go. Together, Delilah, yes, we have. Yes, we have. 
I thank you so much for having me on. And many of our official events will begin to launch at the end of September, early October. So keep your eyes and ears on your social media and on your newspapers and listen for the announcements for upcoming book talks. It will be available in all of your libraries and favorite bookstores soon. And we are just delighted. Well, I'm delighted to to be able to read this, to talk about it with you, and to have you as a very close friend. I love you with all my heart. And one thing I want to leave listeners with, this statement that was towards the end of the book, we are always living and we are always dying. So make the most of it. Make the most of it. And until next time, please stay safe out there and be kind to each other. Thank you. These days, people love keeping stats. Calories, shares, likes, steps. But what about a more important stat? There are over 300 fatalities a year due to impaired driving right here in South Carolina. 300 preventable deaths. This is Trooper Wilkes reminding you and your friends not to drink and drive. And if you see someone about to drive drunk, dial star 47. Working together, we can target zero traffic fatalities. In South Carolina, it's sober or slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety. These days, people love keeping stats, calories, shares, likes, steps. But what about a more important stat? There are over 300 fatalities a year due to impaired driving right here in South Carolina. 300 preventable deaths. This is Trooper Wilkes reminding you and your friends not to drink and drive. And if you see someone about to drive drunk, dial star 47. Working together, we can target zero traffic fatalities. In South Carolina, it's sober or slammer. Brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Public Safety. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.